Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country. Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Also coming out in July 2019 from Penguin Random House is a book I had the honor of writing the foreword for called Warrior's Book of Virtues, a field manual for living your best life. Combat veterans Nick Bennis, Matt Bloom, and Buzz Bryan share how lessons they learned during their service can help empower you into a life of deep and lasting virtue no matter the obstacles you face. Available now for pre-order at the links below. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Ken Falk. He is a 21-year combat veteran of the United States Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal Community and retired Master Chief Petty Officer. Ken is highly respected around the world as an innovative and forward-thinking thought leader on the subjects of wounded warrior care, military and veteran transition, counterterrorism, military training, and innovative technology development. Ken's passion is caring for his fellow combat veterans and their families. He's the chairman and founder of Bouldercrest, an organization focused on the teachings of post-traumatic growth and the EOD Warrior Foundation. Ken spends the majority of his time educating the public and private sectors on the issues surrounding the long-term care of our returning military personnel and their families. Ken is also a serial entrepreneur. Ken was the founder and CEO of his first company called AT Solutions. This company was a recognized international expert and valuable global asset in combating the war on terrorism. At the forefront of providing training and consulting services in the anti and counterterrorism industry, AT Solutions was named four consecutive years to the annual Inc. 500 fastest growing privately held companies in the U.S. Ken was also recognized in Entrepreneur Magazine's Hot 500 list in Washington Technologies Fast 50, Smart CEO's Future 50. Ken was the winner of the very prestigious Greater Washington Area Government Contractor Award in the category of companies from 75 million to 100 million. In 2010, Ken was named as the Entrepreneur of the Year 
support Fredericksburg, Virginia Regional Chamber of Commerce and selected as a finalist in the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year program. He is also the author of the book he co-authored with Josh Goldberg called Struggle Well, Driving in the Aftermath of Trauma. It is a great honor today to speak with you, Ken. Welcome to Get Up Nation. Oh, thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Ken, you surround yourself with innovators and disruptors who refuse all excuses and systemic shortcomings, forging ever onward and upward, creating brilliant and satisfying life experiences for even those who have survived the most troubling realities our world dishes out. First, let me express my appreciation and admiration for you and your work in service of others. I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. It's yep. a great honor to be surrounded by people like that. Let's get into this. I can't wait to share your journey of resilience and your amazing work with Get Up Nation. As a young man, you loved hockey. School was a challenge for you, though. You talk about how you barely graduated high school, and yet, and yet you've accomplished so many tremendous things. So I'd love to delve into that a little bit. Will you share some about your upbringing and early experiences that were significant for you? Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate you picking up on that. So I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to parents, a father from Chicago and a mom from Pittsburgh. My dad got out of the Army and became a cop in Washington, D.C. in 1960, and a couple years later, my mom and I moved down from Pittsburgh to join him in the D.C. area. So I grew up here in D.C., a great set of parents. In 1970, when I was only seven years old, my mom uh, died of cancer, and my dad was left with me and my, my younger brother as a single father. So my grandmother, my grandfather had just died up in Pittsburgh, and my grandmother ended up moving down and kind of being our caretaker for a couple of years before my dad remarried my stepmom, who is still alive today. My dad has passed on, but overall, I think in the big picture of things, I had a great childhood. I did have a little bit of childhood trauma in the sense that my grandfather on my mom's side was a very abusive alcoholic and a World War II and Korean War vet, kind of what we know today, probably suffered with severe PTSD from his time in war and his service, but never dealt with it. The way he dealt with it was alcohol, and that always turned into some kind of nasty, violent rage. So we saw some of that, but overall with my parents and my family, it was a great life. I did get wrapped up in ice hockey primarily because I would go to summer camps as a kid, you know, playing hockey just to kind of get out of the house, and especially when my dad was a single dad, just to get away from having to deal with us at home full time. So I became quite a good hockey player. My dream was to go to college and play hockey, but the colleges don't take you in when your SAT scores are 960 and your grades and GPA aren't, aren't very good either. So I had a couple rough years, probably the last two years in high school. I had a great group of friends. It wasn't a bad group of friends that I got involved with, but our focus was always on sport and chasing girls and not really anything else, including academics. And that proved to be true for most of us, who, by the way, the four of us, kind of the four musketeers that, that were my high school friends and junior and senior year all became very successful in one way or another so I thought I'd take a, a stab at playing pro hockey right out of high school because the colleges weren't knocking on my door and I tried that I moved to Fort Worth Texas to play for a team called the Fort Worth Texans they were the farm team for the Colorado Rockies at the time and this is 1980 and that didn't work out either so I spent a year working in this ice rink in Fort Worth Texas the only ice rink in Fort Worth Texas and running their youth and adult hockey league managing the ice rink at night when the crowds were bigger and I had a great year there but I just knew there was something better in, in my future for me so that's kind of what led me to the Navy but that's, that's kind of the childhood side of things you decided to join the military sounds like you had a lot of family influence with service Will you share just a few of the impactful and meaningful experiences you had during your service? I'm sure there's a number of them, but any on the top of your mind right now? Two things. I mean, I joined the military first, Ben, because I did have influence. 
influence. My dad, my grandfather, some uncles that served. I grew up during the Vietnam War right outside of Washington, D.C. All of our neighbors as kids were military families. They'd move in from all these exciting places around the world, Guam and Korea and England and Italy. And my family had never left Pittsburgh or Washington, D.C. So it was very intriguing. All my childhood mentors, my scoutmasters, my bosses were all military men. And they had a big influence on my life. And that's kind of what led me to join. But I had a great career. I started off in the Navy Ceremonial Guard. We're the ones that do all the funerals at Arlington Cemetery, all the White House ceremonies, and had a really good career. Uh, probably the first major part of my career. In 18 months in the Ceremonial Guard, I attended as a casket bearer, carrying caskets and folding flags over, over a thousand funerals. And in January of 1982, an Air Florida Flight 90 hit the 14th Street Bridge, and I was on duty that night and spent you know, a, lot, a lot of time out on the water that evening helping out with that plane crash, and that wasn't a very pleasant experience. But about midnight that night, this little dive boat came chugging up the Potomac River, and the bomb disposal school used to be in a place called Indian Head, Maryland, which is 30 miles south of Washington, D.C., right on the river. And all Navy bomb disposal guys are, in fact, divers. So they had taken all these divers out of training and brought them up to go dive on the wreckage to look for things like black boxes and bodies and maybe people that might still be living. But I ended up working my way onto that little dive boat that night, met some bomb disposal guys, or what we call in the military EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, ended up getting recruited into EOD. And that's what started. So I became a bomb disposal guy in 1985 and spent the rest of my career doing bomb disposal work. I know we're skirting over a lot of things here, but you've done so many amazing things. And uh, I want to really hone in on some of your work with post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress. So I would definitely encourage anybody listening to this to look at your history and all of the things that you've accomplished in business. It is truly remarkable. And so to the audience today, I'm skirting over a number of accomplishments and acts of service that have profound depth and meaning and achievement. But now we're going to transition from there. You began to serve wounded warriors, and you had some troubling experiences doing research on what treatments were available for people dealing with post-traumatic stress. Can you share briefly how that transition happened for you from the business world into really looking at serving wounded warriors and why this became a passion of yours to find better solutions for post-traumatic stress treatment? Yeah, absolutely. So I transitioned out of the Navy. I was a senior enlisted rank in the Navy, a Master Chief Petty Officer when I retired in 2002, and I started this company, AT Solutions. It ended up doing really well, but when we started it, as, as any startup, you never know what the heck's going to happen, but it did really well. A combination of great people and great timing on our part. And about two years into that company, so I started it in March of 2002. In 2004, we had our first severely injured bomb disposal guy in Iraq. And a friend of mine was deployed to Iraq and he asked me if I would meet this family at the hospital. And I went to the hospital to meet this family and there was no family there. There was this young man laying in the bed with no legs. And after kind of questioning him on where his mom and dad were, found out that he had no dad and had no siblings, but his mom was in Kentucky and had no money and had a dog she was trying to get somebody to watch and trying to buy a plane ticket or drive up to DC where he had been medevac to Bethesda uh, Naval Hospital. We ended up getting his mom on the phone and my wife and I ended up buying her a plane ticket and getting her a hotel room and everything because early in the war the government wasn't paying for families to travel to the hospital. Now I thought as a veteran of the first Gulf War I figured this thing would be over in three months and be the first and last guy I saw to lose his legs. I did that 11 more times that year before I actually started 
in my company in AT Solutions, we actually had an employee who we hired just to take care of wounded guys. So I was funding all of that out of our company just so that we could take care of wounded bomb disposal personnel because that's where our ties really were to the active duty force. And one thing led to another. We ended up turning it into a nonprofit, a 501c3, which I still oversee today. It's called the EOD Warrior Foundation. And, and that's headquartered down at Eglin Air Force Base, Panhandle of Florida. And we still take care of wounded EOD personnel. We take care of families of guys and women, but women uh, killed in combat as well. Men and women who have been killed in combat, we take care of their families too after they've left us. So that's kind of the mission of the EOD Warrior Foundation. And when I sold AT Solutions, I went on with the next phase of my life. My wife and I started visiting wounded warriors ourselves a lot more at the hospitals. And this was like 2010 to 12, which just so happened to be the worst year in Afghanistan for amputees. And one thing led to another. We started bringing these families out to our house. We live an hour west of Washington, D.C. in the Blue Ridge Mountains and started bringing these families out to our house for barbecues and weekend stays and ended up taking 37 acres of our 200-acre estate and donating it to build the nation's first dedicated, privately funded wellness center for veterans and their families. And today we run two of these. They're called Boulder Crest Retreat. We run Boulder Crest Retreat, Virginia. We run Boulder Crest Retreat, Arizona, just south of Tucson and Sonoida. We see about 1,400 people a year through various programs. But really, our flagship program here has, has become our PTSD program or our program that helps people who are suffering. Because a lot of people that come to us haven't been diagnosed with PTSD. Many of them don't have PTSD. They're suffering with depression and anxiety and transition stress and those types of things, not necessarily diagnosed PTSD. So we help a variety of people. But that Warrior Path program uh, is really our flagship program, and that's where I spend most of my time today, and primarily because after traveling around the nation and now even the world, I've been to several countries and looking at different PTSD-related treatments. What I've grown to know is that what we do with the traditional mental health approach simply doesn't work. It doesn't make anybody better. It may make you feel less bad, but it doesn't make you better. And what my mantra has become is that 20 veterans a day take their own lives. 125 Americans a day take their own lives by suicide. 20 of those are veterans. And I just can't sit back and watch this happen and watch the mental health community not respond in a more innovative and positive way. And that's what's led me to, to where I am today. And part of the wisdom that you share is in the book you co-authored with Josh Goldberg called Struggle Well, Thriving in the Aftermath of Trauma. Will you share why you wrote the book and describe what engaged you about the opportunity to serve others in creating realistic, effective, and powerful treatments to transition people from post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic growth. So we wrote the book, I mean, we, primarily because we had, we'd run Warrior Path here at Boulder Crest Retreat, Virginia, for four years and one year out in Arizona. And we did an 18-month study on the program with two clinical psychologists. And we kept hearing things like, you know, this is amazing, the results are, you know, three to five times better than traditional mental health care. The breakthroughs that you make with these men and women in two days take the average therapist 14 months. So, I mean, we kept hearing things like that. And I kept thinking, well, if this is all true, which we believe it is, we better be doing something about trying to change the system, too. Mm -hmm. And 
you start to think about, you know, we're a small nonprofit at the end of the day. I mean, 1,400 people is a lot, but, it's, but it's, when you think of this problem, which is millions and millions of people in this nation, not just veterans, but millions, veterans, active duty military, millions of people suffering with things like depression and anxiety and PTSD. And we thought, well, how do you reach a broader audience quicker? And although we're trying to scale our work and we're doing a pretty good job of that as a nonprofit, one way to, to scale it quickly is to write a book and, and get the word out and get it on Amazon where lots and lots of people can have access to it and try to keep the price down as low. So we spent a year writing the book and semi-self-published it, and it's on Amazon for you know $15 or something, and it's cheaper than any pharmaceutical solution, and I think it's helping a lot of people. We've had some amazing testimonials and and amazing feedback on the book and people that have written this beautiful letters and it saved their lives and it's just really inspiring and that's really what the purpose of writing the book was is to be able to share the word in a much broader fashion for those who are overwhelmed and struggling right now who may be listening to this you describe how when we dare to go into the abyss as joseph campbell wrote that we can recover the treasures of life will you share some about how the experience of post-traumatic stress can lead to post-traumatic growth that creates deeper relationships, greater personal strength, increased appreciation for life, an awareness and an apprehension of new opportunities, and a greater sense of the meaning of life and death. Will you share some about that? Those last things you listed, Ben, are really the outcomes of post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth was discovered by two clinical psychologists at, at the University of North Carolina, Dr. Rich Tedeschi and Dr. Lawrence Calhoun, and they studied bereaved families, families who had lost children to cancer primarily, and studied them for a long time, 30 years. And those were the outcomes that ended up in 1995 creating this term post-traumatic growth. Those outcomes were witnessed in all these families, whereas you think about something like losing a child, possibly one of the most devastating things that could happen in your life, if not the most devastating. And if you think about that, you think you could surely give up on life at that point, right? I have nothing to live with. My child's gone. Or, you know, especially if you have one child and not multiple children, or, or if you believe that it's your fault or whatever it might be, you could surely come up with a lot of reasons why your life wasn't worth anything. And that wasn't what Tedeschi was seeing in, in these groups that he studied. It was the opposite. It was these families that had gone on to do some remarkable things, helping other families and starting their own nonprofits and going on walks to raise money for cancer research and all these other types of things. And, and Tedeschi, as he interviewed these families, those were the things that, that he listed that he said, wow, these people do understand the meaning of life. These people do have improved relationships. And it's just the list kept growing, and, and those were the outcomes of post-traumatic growth. When I met Tedeschi, because I was so intrigued by the term, I met Tedeschi and I said to him, I understand that you've studied these families, but do you think that we could teach people how to achieve post-traumatic growth in his life? And he said to me, you know, nobody's ever asked me that, but I'm very intrigued. And I said, I'm, a, I'm kind of an expert in training. That's my background. I know how to provide training and how to develop programs. What if we created a training program to teach people how to live a positive life? Because for the most part, as humans, we become the sum of our training. And that training starts at birth, right? So if you have a really good life for the first 18 years of your life, you'll probably turn out to be a pretty good person. If you have a terrible life for 
the first 18 years of your life, you're probably going to struggle because you grew up in poverty or abuse, and sexual abuse, physical abuse, and all these things that the psychological community refers to as adverse childhood experiences. It makes your life a lot harder. And I'm not saying the people that don't grow up with those have a silver spoon. I'm just saying that it surely puts you on a different path. When you start your journey as an adult and you're already carrying 18 years worth of trauma, it makes your life very difficult. And that's what we continue to see. So what we try to do is we teach these programs is to teach people how to take a knee, how to take that five minutes, that five days, that seven days, whatever it might be, and kind of dump all this stuff from the past out of our rucksack and learn how to really honor the past. Right? We can't get rid of it. No matter what shot they give you, what pill they give you, what treatment they give you, you cannot forget what happened in the past. And that's just a fact of life. And that's what happens with things like PTSD and depression. People get stuck in their past. And what we try to do is say, okay, honor that, but learn how to live in the present. And to be successful, learn how to plan for the future. Because one thing we do know about mental toughness, or, you know, I, I don't like the word resilient necessarily, because resilience to me in the literal definition means to bounce back. And what we're trying to do is teach people how to thrive. We don't want to just go back to something, right? I always think of the movie Napoleon Dynamite. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, if you remember Uncle Rico, you know, the, the guy who was a high school... Yeah. He was a high school star quarterback, right? I mean, right. and the best the best thing that guy could remember in his <laughs> life was being a high school quarterback. Right. I was a damn good hockey player at one time in my life, but I'm not that guy anymore, right? right? But I'm trying to be a good human. What is that now? And that's what we're trying to do here is teach people how to live in the present, how to self-regulate, that when stress overtakes our bodies, that there is a way to deal with that yourself without pharmaceuticals, without shots, without a therapist talking to you. There are ways to self-regulate. The problem is people that can't self-regulate often self-medicate, and that turns into a disaster. And then to create this mental toughness, or maybe what you would refer to as resilience, to create this mental toughness, now that I know how to deal with today, how do I plan and how do I live a, a meaningful life in the future? And one thing we know about mentally tough people is that they set lots and lots of short-term goals and they achieve them. And those short-term goals finally equal up to a roadmap to their future, right? I know that at some stage in my life I'm going to die. Maybe for me it's in my 80s or 90s or whatever it might be, but the truth is it could be tomorrow. Who is the man that I want to be known for at the end of that journey? And every day when I get up, am I living that life of, of that man, right? That's the life that I want to live. Otherwise, what happens a lot is that I tell people all the time that you, you live this proverbial life of the tail wagging the dog. You get up every morning and life slaps you in the face and throws you sideways and you can't self-regulate through the stress and then you can't get yourself back on track and the whole day becomes a disaster. So that's why setting these goals are so important. The only way to learn how to live in the present and to honor the past is to dive into that abyss that, that Joseph Campbell talks about. And it's dark down there. I mean, for a lot of people, you talk about adverse childhood experiences. The average American has at least one of these adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, I listed a few of them, poverty, neglect, divorce, alcohol and drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, all that stuff in your family somewhere. The average American has one. 30% of Americans have two or more. So 30% of Americans, which is about the number of people that suffer with things like depression and PTSD, 
there's this direct correlation between the childhood experience and what they're dealing with. They've never been taught. So we become the sum of our training, this training that occurred from the day we were born. And, and that training is what we want to do as an adult. Because nobody really trains us how to live a great life. You know, schools don't. Schools are focused on academics. Military and most jobs don't. They're focused mostly on your technical skills. So what we're trying to do is really teach people how to live a good life. If we as a nation become effective in the treatment of post-traumatic stress, what kind of world does this have the potential to create? That's a great question. I think we're all hopeful. I always tell people, I'm not a very religious man, but if we put religion aside, I think most people can agree. At some stage in life, there was some guy named Jesus that walked on this earth, and, and he used to say some pretty powerful things, but the one and the most powerful thing I think he ever said was, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. And I think if, if that's all we did as humans, this would be a much better world. But the fact is we don't. I don't think we ever will. There's some bad guys out there that will never affect. What I'm hopeful of is that people that suffer with these major depressive disorders, things like alcoholism, drug addiction, um, depression, anxiety, what I'm hopeful for is that they can find a way better than what's currently available, and we can teach each other and be there for each other. And I'll give you one example of this. So we've been talking to a doctor who we're very very much enamored with by the name of Vikram Patel. And he's actually got a TED talk. It's, it's, uh, he's an Indian psychiatrist. In the country of India, where they have a billion people, they only have 5,000 mental health professionals. Their most effective programs in India are based on peer-to-peer -peer support, friends. Because as humans, we thrive on relationships, and you become the average of the three to five people you spend the most time with, right? So it seems very clear to me that we have to get toxic people out of our lives and get these three to five people right in our lives as priority number one. That mixed with the ability to self-regulate gives you a great opportunity to be successful. And when I define success, I'm not talking about making money or buying new shoes. I'm talking about being able to get up every morning with a mission and purpose and focus and do what we're put on this earth to do, which is help each other. Patel says... Here in the United States, where we have 300 million people, give or take, we have 300,000 mental health professionals. Now, if you talk to the mental health community, they believe we need more mental health people. If you talk to the VA, they believe we need more mental health therapists. But the truth is that, that if you keep proliferating this system that's not working, then how do you get people better? So I think where the big bang for the buck becomes is that if we can teach each other how to help each other, you become a lot better nation. And that's what we're trying to do now, is really get people to understand that there is a way, and sometimes it's just a matter of how can you be nice to people, but there is a way to be there for your neighbor. And we've grown as, as a society. When you look at the, the suicide rates, as a society, we have grown apart. You know, we rely on social media instead of our neighbors. Most people don't even know who their neighbors are. And I'm not talking maybe the exact person next door to you, but when I was a kid, if you were acting up and you were three blocks away, that guy would take you by the ear back to your dad and make sure your dad knew about it. People don't do that today. They're afraid of getting sued. We're not a nation anymore of community, and that's what's missing in this, in this life. I mean, Sebastian Younger wrote a book called Tribe, which was really intriguing, and he talked about soldiers specifically in PTSD, and he said it wasn't the war that was causing PTSD. What was causing PTSD was when they came back to this nation, they were coming back to a disconnected society. Right. When you're at war, you're with people that you know you can trust, and now you come back to the society, and that, that trust is gone, and all of that leads to this stress and, 
and that stress is what manifests itself as anxiety and depression, PTSD. Ken, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Yes. Who are you thankful for today? I am thankful for my wife, my daughters, and my grandchildren. I'm also very thankful for the employees that worked with me to help get us to be successful with my companies, my for-profit companies, my two nonprofits. And I'm very thankful to the people that are really trying to change this world to be a better place. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? Well, I'm thankful for two parents. You know, my mom died when I was seven years old, as I told you earlier, but I'm thankful for my dad and my stepmom who raised me and didn't have me exposed to the horrific childhood trauma that I've come to know through the people that we've been helping. And that's really what I'm thankful for. They gave me the great opportunity, although nothing was ever perfect, they gave me a great opportunity to start my life without carrying a bag of rocks around. How do you fuel the fire within you? That's a great question. I, I did a podcast a few months ago with a friend, and, and I told him, I said, 70% of Americans hate their jobs. And I said, every single morning I get up and I can't wait to get to work. It fuels me to know that what we're doing is changing people's lives and getting to know other people and trying to make the world a better place. And I think that's what fuels me. And my grandchildren today. I was a very absent father. I was deployed a lot in the military. I was gone a lot in my company. But I've got four beautiful grandchildren now. And I just, I love being at home. And I love being with them. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? I think it's a time to pause, right? It's just what we would call in the military this tactical pause. And, and adversity says, stop, understand it, don't make it happen again. You know, I'm a bomb disposal guy. You know, I come from a profession where you can't make mistakes. So when mistakes do happen, and hopefully in training, you learn from them, and those mistakes happen over and over. I made hundreds of mistakes running my company. We could talk for hours just about the mistakes and the adversity that, that hit us in the face. And I think what adversity does is it really, to be successful in the outcome of adversity, it really gives us that time to pause, to look inside and say, okay, I learned the lesson. Let's go on. Let's not let it hold us back. Let's just go on and know that it's going to get better. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? <laughs> That's an easy one for me. Uh, I spend most of my time today raising money for our nonprofits, and I tell everybody it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I've been shot at, I've disarmed bombs, I've been diving in deep, dark waters, I've jumped out of airplanes in the middle of the night. I've done a lot of dangerous things in my life, but there's nothing as hard as raising money. And I think if somebody had told me 30 years ago, you could spend grandfather years just going around asking people for money to, to help them get this nation healthier. And what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? Oh, so that's a tough one. I've got goals set for myself and for our organizations. Well, I think what I look forward to the most is being able to look back and say we've made some significant progress and stopping the suicide dilemma and suicide epidemic in our country. Ken, what can people do to learn more about you and your work? You can get a copy of the book, The Struggle Well. Josh and I are pretty open and honest in there. We share our own personal stories in there, stories of adversity and how we've overcome them and how it relates to post-traumatic growth. Strugglewell.com is our website. And then the two nonprofits that I oversee, the EOD Warrior Foundation is eodwarriorfoundation.org, and then the retreats and the Boulder Crest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth can be found at bouldercrestretreat.org and bouldercrestinstitute.org. Get up, Nation. 
as we strive for better mental health care, as we strive to erase the fear and stigma of mental illness, as we strive to prevent suicide and adverse childhood experiences, as we strive for thriving, resilient human beings, organizations, and societies who are able to effectively rise to unparalleled levels of well-being, what are you doing today to contribute to this liberation, to, as Ken Falk puts it, struggle well, and use your adversity to grow into more powerful, more connected, and more self-aware people committed to creating a world where negativity and pain are transformed on a collective journey into the abyss and through until we reach a content awe at living and a reverent gratitude for every moment we share with one another. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast.